0: This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Proddy will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today, it is December 6th, kind of mid-afternoon. Markets have been flat today. They've actually been flat the last few days. Really waiting on a lot of data. Uh, Productivity came. The data seemed to be pretty strong. Uh, We've had some very, very big declines in uh, job seekers, which we'll kind of get to in a little bit, which seems to indicate that people are more optimistic about a soft landing. Um, But, you know, we've definitely seen some pronounced slowdowns in a lot of important aspects. Uh, Tim, let's kind of get in the market.
1: All right. How are you doing, Drew? Good, good. So first thing just with your kind of opening comments there on productivity, people always have to remember to look at productivity over a long period of time. Productivity is an output of a lot of numbers that by themselves get very much meaningfully revised. So a 5% productivity in one quarter, do you, I mean does anybody really think that that out of nowhere we had a 5% growth in productivity? Of course not. The reality is um that productivity really jumps around. We've had a couple of quarters uh in the recovery since the, the the end of the pandemic that have been negative. And I so that's why I always when I talk about productivity I, I look at it over almost five year periods, 10 year periods. Economists always just plug in you're going to have 2% productivity in perpetuity. I have a more bearish thesis that long term uh productivity is actually going to be under pressure. But anyway, more relevant to the markets, you know, it is, what are we, what are we, at December 6th, we had this rally started with the QRA, right? Remember I wrote that essay, what is the QRA and why does everyone care all of a sudden? And I concluded that essay with, you know, the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is going to borrow short, she's gonna take pressure off the long end, we're gonna get a rally in the long end, and that's what's happened. But what then is really pushed that rally further is if you look at like the city uh, surprise index for months as the ten year was going to five, uh, we were getting upside surprises to the data, right? It uh, cu- culminating in the 5.2 percent uh, GDP for third quarter. By the way, GDI is at 1.5 percent, which suggests to me that you're probably. Um, you GDI measures income, and it comes late. That's why nobody pays attention to it. You've already gotten the GDP. But if GDP is outstripping GDI by that much, it's probably a little bit of measurement area error, measurement error, but it's also a little bit showing that uh, you're outspending your income. In other words, um and we know this, consumers are drawing down savings. So that obviously has a finite duration to it. But, look, all the economic data has slowed quite a bit. We've gone from upside surprises on the data to downside surprises on the data by and large. and and that and that has really pushed down the long end, and it has suggested if you look at Fed's fund futures, that we could have the Fed cutting as soon as March. I wrote an essay this morning that basically said, look, you got you got inflation expectations moving higher here as gas prices are falling, which does not normally happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, historically, I've always been like, inflation expectations, what do they tell you? They just tell you where gasoline is. Well, not right now. And then the other thing is that, you know, the Atlanta Fed wage tracker still at 5-2. We got ADP wages at 5-6. When inflation expectations going up and wages running north of 5%. I think the odds of the Fed cutting in March are negligible. Now, those numbers are going to be lower by the time we get to March, but they're going to have to be a lot lower, I would argue, for the Fed to start cutting. The last thing Powell wants to do is cut too early. He's said it a hundred times, and I think he'll probably remind us again between now and March.
0: Last week, he said that this was all premature, despite the fact of what, you know, Fed Fund's futures are pricing in. Um, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. He's a, uh, I think he's probably a very nice guy. I think he's probably a really smart guy. He's a terrible job owner. He is terrible at it. And it matters. It matters from the stance of looking at financial conditions, right? He did not want to let financial conditions ease in the way that they have. Stock market going up bonds going up, yields coming down, all of that eases various measures of financial conditions. I can't imagine that's what he wanted, but he just has no ability to really try to jawbone and scare the market. Maybe he doesn't think he sh- it has to, mm-hmm. but I actually think he's trying and failing at doing it.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. Do, do you think we'll see bond yields come off a fever pitch coming into this year? Uh, it seems like they already have, and that, that might be a trend that continues. Uh.
1: Uh, look, if the economic data continues to get weaker, I think you have to su- assume the action will continue to look like this, right? If we continue to get, let let let's say Fed fund futures are right, and in and in March the Fed really is cutting, then I think you're going to continue to see strength in the ten year uh, yields down, and and same in the two year. I just think it's premature. The, it's it's funny in that. The bond market is pricing for the economy to fall off a cliff, and equities are pricing for the economy to hold up pretty well. Because if it doesn't hold up pretty well, you're sure as hell not getting 12% EPS growth, which is what is being assumed and now priced into the market for next year. You kind of can't have your cake and eat it too. Now, you know the fund flows that are driving mega caps. Maybe fundamentals to some degree for the indexes for those mega caps don't matter as much, right? I mean, we've had anemic earnings growth uh, in, in, in 2023, and yet we've had this huge rally, this massive rally of the mega caps. Apple's gone X growth, it hasn't mattered to its multiple. Tesla's had massive earnings revisions. Tesla's come down. Uh, you know, you got to look at Tesla from where it was in the 400s. Now it's closer to 250, but it still has held up relative to any car company in history. And I think a lot of that is about its market cap. So you're not getting paid at least now for being right about earnings revisions or growth revisions to the downside. So, you know, I, I think at some point they matter. They always have to matter, right? The old expression that the, The market is, in the short term, a voting machine, but in the longer term, a weighing machine. But I just wonder—you know—we we've been—I've been kind of thinking out loud about these changes to market structure and how much passive money, index money, um, you know, uh, uh, all all kinds of various versions of passive money, how much they have distorted the market and how much it will um, change uh, how S and P 500 companies, mega cap companies, are valued versus the rest of the market. I mean, hell, look at Uber. Uber's up like 50% since it became clear that they were gonna make money in the third quarter and thereby allow inclusion up to the S&P 500. So by the way, if you're a passive investor, you're not buying it where it was, you're buying it up 50%. So so the, the broker dealers and the hedge funds have gamed it. So you are now gonna buy it when you buy your index fund at an inflated price and they will be the seller to that index fund.
0: Oh, yeah, and how much overlap passive investors have. You know, I was getting a little brief from our old friend uh, Grant Kahn the other day, when I'm talking about target date funds, but then I've got uh, small cap and mid cap. And I mean, you know, a lot of this is doing the same job <laughs> functionally, yeah. uh, so I'm just getting the same exposure over and over again. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of that going around, you know, with, within retiree investors and, and and passive investors.
1: Yeah, it's basically mega caps and everything else. It, it, well, and to some degree, the smaller you go, the worse the performance is, right? Microcaps and small caps are down for the year. Uh, you know, kind of the bottom half of the S and P are flat, up a little bit for the year, and then obviously you've got the the mega caps that are up astronomically for the year. Still, by the way, at least at least on the index side, you're still down from the highs of of, of early twenty twenty two in the S and P, in the Q's, and by a wide margin in the IWM and the microcaps.
0: So in terms of job vacancies, that ratio has come down to almost look like pre-pandemic. It's 1.3 openings per to one openings per available worker. At one point, that was two to one. Pre-pandemic was 1.2 to one. So, yeah. you know, that that seems like we've had we've gotten back to some normalcy. And, uh, you know, Gary Cohen, who is um, Trump's economic advisor, said as much this past week. Um,
1: yeah, you know, uh, normalcy is one of those words like average, right? It doesn't really mean anything, right? We we're gonna cross through normalcy, um, but you know, where do we where do we stop? Do we bounce and 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 you know, it gets more inflationary and it gets tighter, or do we go through it? Um, my guess is that, uh, and what I said in my essay today is that despite these early signals of softening in the labor market, temps, job openings. Wits rates, whole bunch of other ones, wages, you got the ADP number today, 5.6%. Mm-hmm. Wage growth is 5.6%. For job leavers, it's over 8%. You've still got, and, and we did get some of the labor, we got a labor settlement with the actors in Hollywood, but you still have a lot of energy that has built up in momentum in organized labor in this country, and I don't think that is going away. And in a weaker labor environment, I still think you might see above-trend wage growth uh, because not all labor is fungible, right? If a if a guy who is a sheet rocker loses his job because you know they they've overbuilt finally on single-family and multifamily in his area, he can't just turn around and take a job in IT. He's got you know, so not all labor is fungible. I think that you are going to have and I don't love the Lizanne Saunders rolling recession thing. But there is still gonna be a tight job market in the leisure, in hospitality, uh, in healthcare, in education, parts of this country. And I think you're gonna to continue to see wage growth in those areas, and to the degree that we are continuing to subsidize a nationalistic industrial policy, you'll continue to see demand in those areas as well. Um, so I don't know. I, you know, this is where I think that secular thesis that we have comes into play where we just don't have enough workers and we also have the most productive workers, as I wrote about recently, deciding they wanna work less. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, the tightness in labor is not just easily, quickly going away and it's one of the reasons, obviously, why I think hire for longer relative to expectations on a March cut.
0: It, it is wild to me that two years ago we went from telling people to work in retail to learn how to code And now all of a sudden, uh, you know, the paychecks are on fire and there's absolutely no intention of learning to code. So, uh, yeah, Um, you know, we've talked about China, obviously, but it seems like their hidden debt issues are really coming to a head, Um, you know, when we're looking at, uh, especially on a provincial level. So some cities and provinces are starting to, you know, show, show that it's happening. If we're looking, you know, at a federal level, uh, China's debt to GDP ratios, you know, aren't even close to the States, but it looks like, you know, on a municipal level, they're holding on to a lot of junk. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, look, this is all, all about the implosion of, of excess malinvestment, right? You can't just keep building empty apartment buildings. Uh, eventually the greater fool theory is going to run out. I mean, I, I, I've been saying this for a long time, and maybe it's that I was so incredibly affected and that was such an intense part of my life and my career of living through the great financial crisis. I was a housing analyst at a hedge fund at the time. Uh, I just think that what you're seeing in China is the U.S. great financial crisis like times 10. And I'm not the first person to say that. I think more and more this is becoming a consensus opinion, like what do you do when there is just, there's no cash flow behind all of these empty units. They are empty. Uh, So what is the right value of them? Um, You know, you have unemployment going higher in China. You have, uh, there was an incredible story in the New York Times uh, this week about who are all these Chinese that are getting themselves to Panama uh, and Ecuador in order to make their way to the United States. And they had a series of interviews with these people and they are middle class or lower class people or people who were once middle class who feel persecuted and feel like they have no chance of getting out of poverty in China. I mean, I I think you have a really terrible malaise hitting China. And, um, you know, that and and I just think China is in trouble. I think China is going to be in trouble for a long time. And it makes me that much more worried that Xi wants to change the subject and you'll see more hostility in in Taiwan. It's really, I say it every time we talk about China, it's really the area of the world that I'm probably most bearish uh, and makes me most nervous about the potential geopolitical implications of a really badly hamstrung, economically hamstrung China.
0: Yeah, I mean, in terms of that hidden debt, it's maybe between 400 billion and 800 billion and now is at a serious risk of default. So. has got wide-reaching ramifications.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, look, if, if if the if Evergrande and all of these other developers are basically zeros, the banks holding all of that debt, uh, and they didn't have a choice when they got it, and now and now and now the, the CCP is saying to them, you "Guys, ought to get you guys ought to loosen up a little bit on your real estate uh, lending." I mean, they they they've got no chance. What ultimately happens is it gets socialized, right? But how much debt capacity does then the 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 government, the the, the central government of China to take on all of this bad debt? Because now you're ba- you're bailing out Evergrande, you're bailing out the bank and you're ba- and you're bailing out the the local state or municipality, too, uh, because they're, they're all zeros. Mm. Uh, and you just wonder what that capacity is going to be. What is that going to mean? Uh, in terms of devaluation, uh, potentially, of the yuan. Uh, how much is, what is that going to mean towards f- continued capital flight and the continued um, just implosion of FDI into China?
0: Well, um, you know, last week, Charles Munger passed away. Uh, wondering if we want to kind of close out on obituaries. He's 99 years old, native son of Omaha as well, obviously, uh, Warren Buffett's right-hand man for, for decades, and you know one of the pioneers, or I should say, maybe apologists for just prudent investing.
1: Yeah, well, I think you probably have more thoughts on the subject than I do. You and Alex have, have written really uh, good stuff about uh, Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, and obviously you can't do that without talking about Munger. The two things I love about Munger in reading kind of the obits and so forth um, is his perseverance, you know, he was in a very bad place in his life when he was 31 years old. He was divorced, he was broke, and he'd had a son that had passed away, had passed away, and he overcame all that. Obviously, and and he persevered. And the other thing I love about him is some of when uh, the clips where he's talking about envy, that that really is what hurts us. Like we all live in in such comfort relative to our forefathers. How you, you especially your fathers in the North Dakota plains, right? But right. I mean, we we live in this extreme uh wealth and comfort and yet it's envy that really kills us and that's what we have to get over uh with our with our egos and i always loved that lesson from munger i loved when he was talking about it and he said well look i'm just too old to be envious but for the rest of you people that's what you need to get over
0: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah no it's uh, i mean i I i think he's right um you know and then it happened coincidentally this happened with just before uh, Henry Kissinger, so I, I think we 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 lost runway of otherwise of hearing Charles Munger stories, and those kind of got overshadowed by the man himself. Um, but but yeah, uh, you know I I do think uh, Ray Dalio put out some nice stuff on LinkedIn, and, and a lot of other investors did as well.
1: Yeah, you know it's 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 amazing since we are in the business of annuities. Uh, give some think, give some thought to what our correct withdrawal rates when the stars of you know the era are passing away, Munger at 99, uh, Kissinger at 100 or 99, uh, Norman Mailer just died today at 101 years old. Like, your dad's always talking about it. We're all gonna live a lot longer than our ancestors, and we need to be right. thinking about how we uh, how we manage that.
0: Yeah. This, I mean, we're rattling off like three centurions, right? Uh, so, yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's wild. But. All right, sounds good. Well, uh, thanks everybody. Uh, Next week we have a guest, Uh, actually the next two weeks we'll have a guest and then we'll wrap up our year on the 20th and then um, we hope everyone has a great New Year's and everything. So, you know, be in tune for that and uh, thanks for all the likes and subscribes and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Wellfest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by Wellfest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.